This is a special report from the coronavirus update. Dr. Robert Malone recently caught up with Jan Jayalek from the Epic Times and gave a full disclosure interview on how we are approaching and dealing with the COVID pandemic and the mistakes that we are making. Dr. Malone is the inventor of the mRNA technology that is currently in use with two of the major vaccines that are in worldwide distribution. Here now, Dr. Malone speaks out candidly about the many issues that we're facing as a society and the mistakes that we're making in dealing with the COVID pandemic. We're now in this odd position where there are groups of physicians that believe that they have protocols that are quite effective in preventing death and disease and hospitalization when deployed early that are being um, active. Their, their ability to uh, employ these methods and these agents is being actively resisted by the government uh, and by various uh, large national organizations with physicians um, not being allowed to prescribe pharmacies not filling physicians' prescriptions, physicians being prohibited from practicing uh, what they believe to be good medicine in hospital environments. Uh, And um, overlaying this is the sense that uh, those who discuss these matters are subject to censor or censure in the form of, of risking losing their medical license. Uh, something that's been threatened by the National Medical Board uh, and has been implemented in some other countries like UK and and uh, Canada. And uh, that's also, I think, created a, a even more sense of unease and, and uh, consternation. Why, why would the government be uh, denigrating uh, these agents that are known to be safe have been used for decades. But with people, not just horses. For in the use of ivermectin, I mean, this has been one of the most, I just have to comment, one of the most bizarre memes or like, you know, disparaging comments that I've seen is, you know, people dismissing this drug, which is, I don't know, could I say used by millions of people daily probably in the world um, for, for, you know, for parasites and so forth is, is, just, is just a horse drug right? How could people take this? This is the meme. I mean, uh, <laughs> this was triggered by an FDA Twitter account that this is what initially led this was an FDA Twitter account that used the term y'all uh, to express that uh, didn't, didn't people understand that ivermectin was a horse drug. And this was picked up by the media and it fueled kind of a, a self-reinforcing thing that was then further fed in by certain government officials. And we ended up with this uh, amazing kind of explosion over the span of about three days, immediately preceding the licensure of denigration of ivermectin as a horse drug. And uh, I was asked, you know, why, why are people, you know, I, as you know, I have horses, I have ivermectin for horses, and I happen to also have ivermectin for myself, um, for my long COVID. Um, So I'm very familiar that there are different form factors, and I would never take, I would absolutely never take the liquid ivermectin that is uh, for sale in many feed stores 
um, this is formulated for cattle. I wouldn't give that to my horses, um, let alone take it myself. And the horse stuff is formulated as a paste for the horses to ingest for bots and other intestinal worms. And uh, the truth is that the dose that's used for horses by body weight is the same dose that's recommended for humans, but it's formulated and manufactured to a quality standard that's very different from what's used by humans. And so there's this meme that erupts about ivermectin being a horse drug. And uh, why would people be taking this in lieu of vaccine? That was, that was how that was pressed. These crazy people, they're, they're vaccine hesitant, but they're very glad to take horse paste. My point of view on that is the, what it showed was that the focus was all on the prophylaxis in the sense that these drugs are being used in lieu of vaccines. My sense is that people are seeking and have been seeking out ivermectin to treat themselves early in the course of, of infection because they're not, there are no other alternatives. The standard policy in hospital management of COVID, in medical management of COVID in the United States remains, you go to the doc, you go to the ER, you say, I am having respiratory distress. They check your blood oxygen levels and they see that you're at 92 or 93 as opposed to say 98 or 99 on room air. And they say, go home and come back when your lips are blue is the metaphor, which means that your oxygen saturation would be about 88 or so. Um, so folks are being sent out knowing that they're at risk of being coming hospitalized and no therapies are offered. And they're a little desperate. I just have one comment. So isn't there this mon monoclonal uh, antibody treatment that... Uh... Ron DeSantis, Governor yes, DeSantis. very expensive, promoting. and he's set up infusion centers. I think that's to a great credit. Mm -hmm. So that is an option. But that means if you're, if you're you know, in the field, you've got to go to one of these, drive out to one of these centers, get, you know, get all the approvals and everything else. A lot of folks, they hear that ivermectin, that by the rumor mill, ivermectin is effective. And they're, in my opinion, um, the truth be told, there are a lot of studies that are um, not definitive. They're underpowered in many cases, not often done in emerging markets of ivermectin, but there, there is one meta-analysis of all those studies done by Cochrane Reports that say that the data is still inconclusive. And there are two other meta-analyses that have come out that say it's pretty clear this works. Um, and uh, Tess Lurie is one of those advocates. And so to say that there's no evidence in favor of using ivermectin when you have governments all over the world using it, um, deploying it. In Mexico, it's over the counter for this very reason. And uh, India, it's now being used widely. Some attribute it to the, the sudden decline in Delta mortality and morbidity in India since they have started deploying it. Presumably, hopefully there's some robust study being done well, that's concurrently, the thing. right? So that's another one of these mysteries. Uh, why we're now a year and a half into this. This agent has been known for quite a while to appear to have activity mm. sufficient that there have been many of these uh, small 
underpowered studies done in emerging markets that are encouraging. But the capital to do a large, well-powered study, like say was done with dexamethasone, involving thousands and thousands of patients that would give a definitive answer to this, why hasn't that been done? So there's, there's, this feeds into you know, what we talked about, conspiracy Legos, where there are folks that see these paradoxes in how the response has been managed, and they have a tendency to take these fragments of information that are kind of non sequiturs. They just, they don't add up. They don't seem to be good public policy. Why is it happening? Why did you have Merck? come out and say that ivermectin is toxic, make a clear statement that ivermectin is toxic, when in fact it's been, uh, it is a WHO essential medicine, just like hydroxychloroquine is, um, and has been widely used throughout the world for 30 plus years, and is generally known as one of the safest drugs in the pharmacopoeia. What would motivate Merck, which held the original patent, and has been giving ivermectin free for river blindness to Africa for years and years and years, what would motivate them to suddenly come out with a clear, unambiguous statement that ivermectin is toxic? It doesn't make sense. Um, And uh, sitting on the active committee of NIH, I saw the same logic being promoted when the NIH... uh, decided, made an executive decision to perform, finally, an outpatient study of ivermectin called Active-6. And and there was strong objections uh, by pharmaceutical representatives that were sitting on the active committee that the NIH would even consider doing this. Now, it's, you know, the, it's, the point is raised that that these companies have a financial conflict of interest. Merck is actively developing its own antiviral. Pfizer is actively developing its own antiviral now. Um, And Pfizer has come out and said explicitly that we cannot control this outbreak, this virus, with vaccines alone. We're going to have to have drugs. Tony Fauci has come out and said we need to have drugs but they're focused on the new drugs. Um, The antibodies have generally proven useful in some cases. They're very expensive. Um, They're a little The monoclonal antibodies. Um, Very expensive. They've got to be administered in infusion centers. So you can't just go take a pill and, you know, get it from your local Walgreens. There is this kind of cascade of, of this doesn't make sense around uh, the use of repurposed drugs and early intervention that, that also I think has got a lot of people on edge a little bit and questioning public policy. And it, it goes back to the position of my Latin American colleagues that I was telling you about earlier that I was on the phone with. They were saying, you know, we're using ivermectin all the time. It helps, in our opinion. And we're using hydroxychloroquine. You know, just one quick comment, something that's just occurring to me. You know, if you're a doctor, you know, in your community, you're directly accountable to your patients. I mean, i.e., if you're saying something works, 
and it doesn't work, people will notice very quickly, and you'll you won't have it. You know, you won't have any patients very quickly. This is just this is just what's you know. And the contrapositive is true also. So you end up with some patients, some physicians, that are um, being absolutely overloaded with patient demands. Uh, Pierre Corey is an example of that. The, the poor man just can't get a break. Um, he's been at the forefront of the FLCCC coalition and developing a lot of these uh, protocols that are being deployed widely through the United States by select physicians, early adopters. I experienced this to some extent. He is absolutely flooded with uh, patient calls and physician calls about um, his protocols and, and how they can be used. Um, and he's, you know, he's just one guy. Peter McCullough is another example at Baylor that has been a firm advocate. He actually has four peer-reviewed papers on these early treatment protocols. Um, he's been sued by Baylor. He's been disparaged right down to the Wikipedia editing that has happened in my case also. This, there's kind of coordinated strategies that are used for any of us that are dissenters in terms of the policy uh, that, that there shall be no early intervention. These docs that have been at the forefront of developing these early intervention protocols have been subjected to a lot of derision and attacks and, and character assassination. What I'm experiencing personally, because I'm part of that cohort now, is we're coming together there's, we're, we're, we're being brought into contact with investors, donors that are, are not comfortable with the current public policy and are very interested in enabling these uh, alternative strategies and their availability. We're being brought into contact with uh, um, political decision makers, um, elected leaders that are very interested in seeing whether uh, these types of strategies can impact on the health and well-being of their populations. They find it attractive that these are agents are quite inexpensive because a lot of these uh, intervention strategies where we allow the patients to get really sick and then go to the hospital, that's a burden on state budgets. And not to mention a, a political liability when you're seeing major outbreaks in places like Louisiana and Florida. I mean, Ron DeSantis, is, um, his fortunes are less solid than they might have been a little while ago before he had this outbreak. One of the things I find fascinating about that is that there's the press is very glad to make a point that right now we're having more of a red state outbreak and associating that with uh, vaccine uptake or vaccine hesitancy. When you look at the data, there isn't that much of a disparity in vaccine uptake. For instance, in Florida, the vaccine uptake is really fairly high, particularly among the elderly. So how do you describe this? When you dig into the data, how do you make sense of it? I think there's a possibility that there is a seasonal component going on here. And we're seeing some of that wave of infection starting to move north. The other thing that's been a confounding variable in all this is uh, respiratory syncytial virus. And there's this 
and we I think we touched on this, there was this, uh, you know, a lot of press about the pediatric ICUs filling up, etc. And the assumption was that they were COVID cases. They weren't. Um, for the most part, they were respiratory syncytial virus cases, which is fairly different in presentation from COVID. And, uh, and also affects elderly, by the way. Hmm. Um, so we become politicized and polarized, and we want to see these outbreaks and these events and these waves of infection as reinforcing some stereotypes that we have about this state's behavior or that state's politics. And um, I, th- I think that over the next few months, we may find that we have to, if we're willing to look the data in the face, we may have to re-examine some of those assumptions that, that uh, this may not have been as much a function of uh, vaccine um, compliance or uptake or a lot of euphemisms we could put around that, but rather some fundamentals of the underlying uh, viral epidemiology and spread um, that are not really well understood right now. We certainly know that most respiratory viruses move in these kinds of waves through populations. And, and uh, we may see, um, I, I, you know, it, it may be that we find that this wave of infection that's currently infesting the South uh, isn't, isn't going to be restricted just to the South over the next couple of months. Time will tell. So you were saying there's some real potential issues with the idea of pursuing a kind of policy of universal vaccination, escape mutants. That might not be something all our viewers are familiar with. So uh, this gets to fundamentals of basically Darwinian evolution um, to, to really understand this. What the term escape mutants refers to is virus isolates that are no longer as susceptible to the control of infection and spread provided by the vaccine, by the immune response generated from the vaccine. So they are escaping immune surveillance provided by the vaccine. That's the nature of the term escape mutants. Mutants in that the viruses, there's another paper out um, recently that shows that the mutation rate of this uh, coronavirus is much higher than we had previously estimated. So uh, the way it works with virology is that it's as if you have a, a, you're breeding a dog and you have a litter of dogs and you'll know that you know if you have six dogs, one or two of those are going to be pretty good keepers and you might want to sell the other ones off. For instance, if you're breeding for uh, the ability to hunt. In the case of a virus, it's like um, the parent virus has millions to billions of children. And many of those have genetic modifications, mutations, that make them genetically different from the source virus. And this works for viruses because they only have to... a small number of particles infecting a third person, another person, is sufficient to rekindle the whole infection cycle. I was talking to a friend of mine, Chad Roy, who's a 
primatologist that's working with the coronavirus down, uh, the SARS coronavirus down at the Tulane Regional Primate Research Center. And he has some interesting data that's going to come out soon where they're tracking the evolution of the virus during the course of infection in a given primate. And in his case, he was fascinated that he was seeing evolution of virus strains to become more able to infect uh, gut and were actually hiding in the gut. So this process of evolution, which also, by the way, occurs with AIDS, with the AIDS virus, you can track the genetic changes in the AIDS virus during the course of an infection. It's amazing to watch. So anytime a virus is infecting a, a host like us, it's generating these mutations all the time and it's constant, those mutations are constantly being selected for fitness is the technical term, right? The Darwinian term. They're being selected for fitness to reproduce. And what that means is that the environment of the host um, has things which restrict our immune system is the notable one. Restrict the ability of the virus to replicate and spread. And the virus and the host are in a constant battle where we're, our immune systems are adapting to try to control that virus, and the virus is constantly escaping those adaptations. And those are the ones that survive, right? Those yeah. are the ones that survive and, and get transmitted. They either replicate in the host or they get transmitted to third parties. So I'm going to cite another paper. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some really good veterinary work in what's called Merrick's disease, which is a in viral infection of chickens. And this is what has many virologists concerned is as a model system. In the case of Merrick's disease, if you have an active outbreak of Merrick's disease in chickens and you start vaccinating against Merrick's disease during the outbreak, what you will do is drive the development of viruses that are able to escape the vaccine. And in the case of Merrick's disease, they actually become more severe in terms of the disease that they cause. So that's another one of those worst case scenarios, like I talked about high zone tolerance, and I previously talked about antibody dependent enhancement or vaccine enhanced infection or disease. There are these uh, situations in normal viral biology and, and uh, vaccinology that uh, give experienced uh, immunologists and vaccinologists a certain amount of concern and pause. And uh, based on Merrick's disease, a lot in other examples, there are many virologists, and I'm one of them, that are concerned that the policy of universal vaccination at the time when we are having a very active outbreak that's global creates the risk that we will drive the immune response of the entire population towards a single endpoint, towards a common outcome in terms of antibody responses. And there's another very nice paper just out recently from Michael Diamond's laboratory at Washington University that shows that in fact, um, we are getting remarkably consistent B cell responses to the vaccination. So we're driving, we, there's an appearance that in the effective antibodies, there's a small number of epitopes that are protective 
in spike. And by only using spike as an antigen, we're driving all of our immune responses towards some common endpoints of immune response against certain domains in spike. And uh, there it can be shown that viruses are evolving during the course of this infection and the use of vaccine in this way to start to escape those selective pressure from antibodies against those certain domains. Spike is an interesting protein. It has a lot of sugars all over it and other things that are used to evade immune response already. So the concern is that by deploying vaccine broadly, the same basic vaccine, all these genetic vaccines all employ spike as an antigen. We're driving the whole human race towards a common endpoint, and we're driving the virus that's infesting us to evolve to escape that common endpoint. And there, there is a risk that at some point in time, we may have basically a superbug evolve, um, which will now evade that immune response. Now, the, uh, an example that your listenership may understand better is the idea of antibiotic resistance. When we deploy antibiotics unnecessarily and very widely, we know that we develop antibiotic-resistant bacteria. The same concept applies in vaccinology with viruses. So what would happen should we have an emergent supervirus that is able to evade these spike vaccines? It is likely that it would cause disease in those that have only received vaccine as opposed to those that have had natural infection and have much broader immune responses. Um, and it would place those that have primarily relied on vaccine for protection that are at risk, high risk of disease and death. In other words, the susceptible and elderly. Suddenly, their first line of defense falls away because the vaccines are no longer effective. And so the risk is, with this universal vaccination strategy, by driving um, uh, the development of viruses that are able to evade the immune responses elicited by the vaccines, that we risk creation of, a, of virus strains that are able to evade that and Paradoxically, the people that it will put at risk are the very people that need the vaccine the most, which is our elders and, and those that have pre-existing medical conditions and morbid obesity. So the logic is vaccinate those, reserve the vaccine for just them, and don't vaccinate the general population that are at extremely low risk, fraction of a fraction of a percent. And, and some more studies that came out recently that basically verify that, I suppose. Yeah. There have been. There's been about three of them that have come out sequentially that are all consistent with this hypothesis. So that's the other leg of the stool that's kind of caused um, some growing concern about our current public policy in vaccination 
is that we are seeing signs of the emergence of these vaccine escape mutants. And now there's a new strain popping up, I think, in South Africa that seems to be more resistant. And there are further evolution of the Delta strains that seem to be more resistant. So um, like with all science, we can't prove that this is going to happen. This is forward-looking risk assessment. Um, We're not there yet. Um, I would prefer that we don't get there. I think probably we can all agree on that. Um, I'm not saying that we're absolutely going to get there, um, but I'm saying that myself and many others believe that our current policy places us at increased risk to having this kind of unpleasant outcome and losing the benefits of the vaccines, which, as I've mentioned, I believe in. I believe we've saved a lot of lives. I believe those benefits are best administered to the people that are most susceptible to death and disease and to reserve the vaccines for those people. Um, so as we as so as we finish up, I just want to get a few thoughts from you about vaccine mandates and vaccine passports, because this is the the big question right now. You know, there's a number of cities, New York City, uh, San Francisco, that have imposed pretty significant vaccine mandates. And I mean, mandate passport, it it kind of becomes a bit of a mandate passport. uh, Quarantine There's a whole cluster of these kind of more controlling, let's say gently, um, some might say authoritarian measures uh, that are being advocated in some cases quite forcefully down to uh, the recent Toronto Star um, headline uh, basically saying, you know, we shouldn't even really provide medical care for those that have not taken vaccine that get infected. Seem to have crossed some cultural lines here about our attitudes about uh, the rights of the individual versus the rights of the collective. And it's these mandates have really brought those discussions and issues to fore. But I still believe that in medical care, I believe in the rights of the individual patient to elect to accept or reject care. And clearly the argument is made that, uh, the population in general has a right to insist that the individual comport with activities which will reduce risk to the population. Um, Their behaviors that we all agree as a culture, we're not going to accept because they create risk for all of us. And we generally try to draw the line that you have the freedom to do what you want to do so long as it doesn't harm me. In this issue of vaccine mandate, falls right into that junction of, is it ethically acceptable to mandate that my brother accept a medical intervention uh, that, that my brother doesn't wish to take in order to protect me from risk? Now, in my mind, the answer to that ethical conundrum is really straightforward. If I'm at risk... I have the option to accept vaccine. We're now in a position where we have vaccine. It's not like it was a year ago. And if I'm a person at high risk and I feel the need 
to have protection, that protection uh, to the best uh, as available is I can avail myself of that. Now, the argument is made that this falls down because vaccines really work through herd immunity. And by my not accepting vaccine or you're not accepting vaccine, you're putting the population, the herd, at greater risk um, by being an individual susceptible to infection and spread. But now that logic is harder to sustain with leaky vaccines, with vaccines that are something in the range of, we could argue, 40 to 60 percent protective against infection, replication, and spread. It's still looking like they're 80 to 90 percent protective against disease and death. But in terms of herd immunity, the, the CDC slide deck that I referenced earlier doesn't get us there. We can't get there with these vaccines. They're not potent enough to have sufficient activity in blocking infection and spread. So the logic of mandates is that the vaccinated contribute to herd immunity that will make it so the whole population is able to economically recover, go about their business, um, live a a normal life, etc., that's no longer really consistent with the data that we have about the effectiveness of these vaccines. In fact, if, if from first principles, if you were to say, hmm, what is the best way to get to herd immunity? Now, what we know about natural infection and natural immunity, we would say it would be to allow the people that are at low risk for death and disease to become infected because that'll give them the broadest and most robust protection. Now, that is translates into, you know, they used to have chickenpox parties, and that translates into the logic of COVID parties. I'm not advocating that, by the way. I'm just thinking of the science article. I think the drop head was, and no infection parties, please, right? Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Because why were they saying that? Why, why that caveat was necessary is because it's actually a logical corollary of the data to say, Uh, actually, there is merit to the idea of getting natural infection. A case could be made because there are data suggesting that Delta may be actually more pathogenic. A case could be made that those that were on the front edge of the infection wave, like myself, that got uh, undoubtedly got infected with an alpha strain, which was potentially less pathogenic, um, were better off than those that are now going to get infected by Delta. Now, I'm not advocating that, but if we're going to be strictly rigorous in our thinking about the underlying logic here, um, the logic that supports mandatory vaccination to protect the population, to mitigate the risk of uh, infection and economic disruption in the workplace or elsewhere, that's no longer tenable. Let me give you another example. Um, I've had a series of conversations with a high-profile person, um, and uh, we have to mitigate that risk. We have no choice. We're a big company, okay? And that logic, which was built over the last few months, if, if you dissect it, it's now lo- no longer tenable because the vaccinated as well as the unvaccinated create risk of infection and spread. I think that 
mandates are tenuous in a fundamental bioethical way. They, they violate the concept of the integrity of self and uh, the rights of the individual to accept or reject medical treatment based on informed consent, which we do every time you go and have a surgical procedure. And when I had my colonoscopy, I had to give a informed consent um, and they had to explain the risks, right? And we've, we've said that, well, in the special case of vaccines, because of herd immunity, we're going to let that ride. Um, but then the underlying thesis that this is going to get us to an endpoint, we're going to compromise our ethical principles because it's going to yield a favorable result. That gets to back to my point about the social contract. Um, we're going to insist and reinforce that you take this product to provide a benefit that actually isn't there. Um, it's not going to get us to the point where we've mitigated the risk to your fellow man. Um, so for me, I find the mandate logic to be a divisive, authoritarian, impractical, and unnecessary. It, it, it creates a situation in which we are forcing the um, fundamental ethical conundrum of the rights of the collective versus the rights of the individual into a, an already inflamed political situation. And, uh, and I don't see how it gets us where we want to go. Um, which is return to normalcy uh, economically and, and in every other way. It, it doesn't provide the protection that is, that is the underlying logic, and um, it divides us at a time when we desperately need less division, please. Um, and so now we've, we have this situation where it's amazingly inflammatory logic um, as, as exemplified in the Toronto Star uh, front page, where, where we have um, groups of populations turning against each other. And it's often, people often cite the language and the example, again, of how the Jews were, were characterized as a special population to be discriminated against because of intangible, illogical um, arguments uh, that weren't grounded in reality. And, and many note that there is similar language and objectification and depersonalization associated with a lot of these statements that are driven just as they were then by fear. Getting back to our starting point, this is not about me. It's not about, you know, whether my feelings are hurt by the Atlantic Monthly or, or some junior journalist or, you know, somebody that's fact-checking me. I'm, I'm a big boy. I can withstand that. What bothers me is, is not those kinds of things. It's, it's these underlying logic flaws that are tearing at the heart of the integrity of our public health system and trust and our body politic. And um, I, I think that it's, it's high time for everybody to take a deep breath, 
and look at the logic of what we're confronting. What are the data? And, um, you know, the criticism that I'm trying to tear down vaccines or tear down this vaccine or that vaccine, please. I'm trying to help people uh, to grapple with the data, the true information, the underlying truth. And uh, I believe there's a valid counter narrative to the very simplified narrative that is being so avidly reinforced uh, and enforced through um, censorship, social media, inf- you know, information management at so many levels. And, and it's like that whole system, that juggernaut, has gotten so wrapped up around a consensus set of truths that are, that are failing now. So I think, I think we all take a deep breath, come to terms with the data, and the many publications that you're going to share as uh, uh, footnotes in this. And, um, and I hope that our discussion today can help folks uh, think for themselves. I, I don't have the answer. I'm, I know that for a fact. I have a lot of questions. I'm a scientist. I'm trying to raise valid concerns and spark thought um, so that we can avoid um, bad consequences by just going along to get along and assuming that, uh, that the dominant narrative is the only option. You've been listening to Dr. Robert Malone in an interview with the Epic Times and the American Thought Leaders segment. Jan Vilek, we thank you also for your contributions. Don't forget to follow us on candidlyspeaking.net.